Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Monique Beadles about the board's role in asset management. First, let me tell you about Monique. Monique is on the boards of the Queensland College of Teachers and the Build Apps Advisory Board. She's got a long list of boards that she's previously been on, but they include the Asset Management Council, Connection Technology for Business, QUT Faculty of Creative Industries Faculty Academic Board, and the Health Quality and Complaints Commission of Queensland. Monique is a fellow of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and a graduate of their Company Directors course and the Chairs course. Monique is a member of the AICD faculty and facilitates their programs on governance, strategy and risk. Monique's latest book, Asset Management for Directors, was published by the AICD in late 2016. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Monique. Thanks, Helia. It's lovely to be here. It is fabulous to have you. And whilst I am very keen to talk about asset management, as always, first, let's dig a little bit deeper about you. Can you tell me what was young Monique like? Well, I suppose it depends how young you want to go, doesn't it? <laughs> I'll leave that to your discretion. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was always very curious and very inquisitive and um, I was, but I was always, I guess, looking beyond the place where I lived in a regional area to what was happening in the wider world. So I suppose I've always liked to have a bit of a wider global view and um, I think when I was young I always expected that I'd go to uni and then, and then I'd go overseas. You know, I think that that was sort of what we all expected when we grew up mm. in the but um, anyway, um, so I, where I was doing my PhD in strategy and that's sort of when I first started to get interested in boards because I had to obviously look at, you know, the, the way the board worked and its role in strategy. But I also had my very first boss who in his office 
had his certificate from doing the company director's course and he had it sitting right there. You talk to him in his office and it would be right there beside you on his wall. And yeah. so I was curious. This is when I was just a new graduate and so quite curious about that and I talked to him about it and, you know, he was on quite a number of boards but I think I saw the, him as a bit of a role model and uh, he really encouraged me in taking on my first board role, which I did when I was 25. So, um, yeah, so I think I, I thank him a lot for his mentorship, mm. I guess, in, that, in those early days. Fantastic. How wonderful to have, yeah, to have someone who can help to encourage and motivate you along that path. Although I'm intrigued, you did a PhD in strategy. That is magnificent. What, what was the topic? Uh, well, it was to do with strategic alliances in mm. the global pharmaceutical industry. So what I looked at was the alliances between multinational pharmaceutical companies and small biotech startups for new product development. And it's, it's quite relevant now, actually, because although it's 20 years ago, quite relevant what we've seen with the COVID vaccine um, really yeah. sort of illustrates the, the whole scenario here, which is that big global companies which are structured for efficiency and scale don't mm. always have the culture to for innovation and new product development. So what happens in reality is that a lot of these big companies will look to universities or biotech startups and other small, you know, innovative companies for their pipeline of new products. So because a patent only lasts 20 years, you've always got to have new products coming through the pipeline. So um, I think it's been really interesting to see how that's all played out with the, with the COVID vaccine. So that's what I, you know, researched in my PhD, looked at how those companies made those strategic decisions about what they would do. Would they, would they license? Would they acquire? Would they merge? You know, all of those types of decisions that they needed to make and how that impacted their financial performance over the long wow. run. So, Yeah. How fantastic. I remember my graduation or graduations because I did two of them and you always hear the PhD topics and uh, it must be said they normally sound a little more abstract than what you did. So. Well, if I gave you the official title, it'd sound <laughs> equally abstract. But <laughs> it's funny because after I finished my PhD, I went I worked in the UK for a little while and I remember somebody just one night when I was out, someone saying to me, oh, what was the title of your PhD? And I had this entire mental blank and I just could not even think of it. And I just thought, oh, that's my brain saying, no, I've had enough of all of that after, you know, yeah, all the put it away. PhD and I needed a rest. But it's funny how, yeah, that uh, doesn't always flow off the tongue that easily. <laughs> Well, it sounds like you've got the hang of being able to explain it again, albeit maybe not in the technical words that were used uh, to as the official title, and that might be a good thing. So, oh, fabulous. Okay, well, you know, we may well draw on some of that that continual learning from the last couple of decades around it and what we're going to talk about today, which is asset management. So, thinking about the board's role in asset management... Firstly, it'd be great if you could explain to us what asset management actually is. And then maybe let's start with how you became interested in asset management at the board level. 
Okay, well, to give you an official definition, <laughs> asset mm. management is the coordinated activities of an organisation to realise value from its assets. So really, in the essence, it's all about creating value from assets. So in terms of the board's role, I mean, we can go into that more, but the board, you know, is other custodians of the company's assets. Basically, they're given that job by the shareholders or the members or the owners or whoever that might be, and um, it's their job to make the most of those assets to pursue the purpose of the organisation, whether that's generating return for shareholders or providing services to the community or whatever it might be. So that's mm -hmm. really what asset management is all about, creating value for stakeholders through assets. Nice. Um, and how did I become interested in it? Well, it's, it's an interesting story because um, after I did my PhD and then I was in some management roles for a while and then I decided to go out on my own in my strategy consulting practice, which I started in 2004. And being based in Brisbane, a lot of my early work was in mining because that's obviously a major industry here. And I went in there to help them with strategy. But what I soon realised is that within companies like that, asset management is central to their strategy. Mm -hmm. So I became quite interested in that and um, obviously started to develop my skills and my knowledge around asset management as a discipline itself, which has really been emerging and professionalising over the last 10 years um, with the introduction of the international standard in 2014. So there's been a lot of, I guess, development in this space over the recent decade. So I got quite involved in that. And what's interesting is that, you know, when I look back now, I say, well, you know, my PhD was really all about asset management. It's just that in the case of pharmaceutical companies, their most important assets are their patents. So it's an intangible asset, but nevertheless, it has a life cycle. You need to generate value from it. All of the sort of concepts that we apply to asset management apply in just the same way to a to a patent or a or a copyright or any sort of um, intangible asset, just as they do to a truck or a train mm. or building. Yeah. And I was thinking exactly that when you were describing, you know, asset management is about realising the value of the assets. That is such a key thing for boards to do. It, it kind of sounds a bit, like I say, a bit abstract. What is asset management? Well, it's just, you know, what is the value of those assets? And as you've just beautifully said, there are a real range of assets for organisations. So we've talked about those trucks whatever it might be, uh, about IP, what are the sorts of other sorts of assets within organisations? Yeah, so obviously you've got your physical assets and some of those are going to be your income generating assets and some of them are going to be the assets mm -hmm. that support you to provide your services or manufacture goods or whatever it might be that you do. Some of the research that I've done in the ASX All Industrials has actually been about classifying the way companies use assets and how that impacts return on assets in terms of how well they are being utilised. So, for example, mm -hmm. if you've got a block of land that's not earning you any money, it's an asset, but it's passive compared to some sort of intellectual property that, in fact, is being sold many, many you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of times and has essentially no theoretical limit on how many times it can be sold. So there's the spectrum from the sort of very fixed passive 
asset that in fact can have negative growth in a time of constrained resources compared to those very flexible and uh, in more intangible assets. So when we're talking about applying a robust asset management system, we're normally talking about the large and valuable assets of the company. So, so we would look and say, you know, is it high risk? Is it high cost? And does it require a whole of life maintenance plan? So something like a mining truck, for example, that might be worth about $5 million each, they are all those things. They are high cost, they are high risk, and they require maintenance across their life in order to maintain their functionality. Whereas, you know, a light bulb, well, it might technically be an asset, but it's low cost, it's low risk, and it's run to failure. So when the light bulb blows, you just replace it. You don't have a maintenance plan for your light bulbs. So, you know, there's different sort of weight given, I guess, to different assets depending on what their purpose is and those things about risk, cost and Mm. the way you look after them. Hi, folks. Just butting in on the middle of the podcast here to say that if you listen to the Take On Board podcast because you are keen on joining a board and you're not sure where to start, then my board Kickstarter program can help. Come and join a small group of fabulous women as we learn all of the tips and tricks to getting on a board. The next program is in August 2021 and the super early bird discount applies until the 18th of July. But don't wait too long as these programs fill quickly. Link in the show notes. Now, back to the show. So is it a little like when you're doing your risk framework, for example, in organisations, there are lots of risks within an organisation and they might be mitigated in different ways. And then the board looks at the strategic risks, not every little, not the rats and mice. How does it work in practice for boards around asset management? Yes. Well, asset management is a risk-based discipline. And that's Mm. often, you know, when I'm talking with asset managers about how they um, convey these things to the board and and vice versa. Risk is often the common ground that the board Mm. and the asset management practitioners have. And it really, yes, it will depend because some of these risks are going to be at the level that they need to be escalated to the board and the board needs to be aware um, because you're talking about high dollar value. Quite often you're talking about things with high level of operational risk as well. And then that leads on to your other things like your reputational risk and all those other types of risks that the board needs to deal with. So um, certainly in terms of which types of decisions is the board going to be involved with from an asset management perspective, it's not going to be the daily maintenance plan, but it is going to be decisions around acquisition and disposal of major assets you know is it time to sell these properties or these airplanes or these ships you know things that are of a high value in their own right that with a delegation of authority will most likely come to the board for those decisions and likewise with risk if it's risk is at a level that it's going to be um Uh, something that the board needs to deal with, then that's also where they would come into it. I've written a book around asset management for directors, as you already mentioned, and in Mm. that I've developed an integrated model that basically um, takes Tricker's model of governance and overlays the asset management fundamentals. And so Mm -hmm. risk is one where they do overlap. We talk about assurance in asset management. So there's internal and external assurance and there's compliance. But also there's then policy, you know, how do we 
convert our strategy into our activities. And that's an important element of asset management as well in terms of aligning corporate objectives to asset management activities. You know, why do we have this asset in the first place? How is it helping us achieve what we're here to do? But the one that is perhaps, you know, quite often overlooked is that there's then also a really important strategic role for asset management. And that's obviously a core purpose of the board. And that comes back again to how do we create value for our stakeholders, you know, whether that's how we generate revenue or how we deliver services. And it's really important from an asset management perspective that we're aligning all of those asset management activities with achieving the company's overall strategic objectives. And then that will guide a whole lot of the decision-making that happens around acquisition and disposal and what are our budgetary constraints? Do we need to put money into this ageing asset or should we sell it or are we better off to try to extend its life? You know, all of those sorts of decisions Mm. are really about how we make best use of our resources. Can you talk us through an example maybe of how this might work in practice and what some of the challenges might be? Uh, There's a whole range of challenges, I suppose, and in terms of the board's specific role in that, um, Mm. the decisions might need to be around, well, we're always looking at demand. What do our stakeholders value? That's, you know, a key question. And then how do we um, achieve that through our assets? So the first question is really about do we need an asset at all or is there a non-asset solution? And uh, one of the examples that that I had uh, mentioned to you earlier as well is that I was on a board uh, a few years ago. I was on a school board and um, we were looking at building a performing arts centre. Now, might I say that the first proposals around this and in fact the first drawings of this performing arts centre were made before I was born. Oh I I mean 21 years ago huh? (laughs) It's fair to say that it wasn't the first time the board had considered this concept um, and that there had been money raised in fact you know over those decades and it's actually the school that I went to and I can remember as a student as a teenager there being one of those thermometers for fundraising where it would, there was a big board, you know, painted by hand back in the day where they would, mm. you know, fill it up with red paint as more money was raised. So there had been effort gone into this for quite some time. And during the time that I was on the board and I was the chairman at that time, we, you know, through a whole range of, of factors, decided that the time was right to to build it now, you know, the financial position of the school, the various factors also around the need, you know, so because the the school does have a world-leading music program and a big range of performing arts activities that were going on and orchestras rehearsing, you know, under buildings and, you know, all sorts of finding every nook and cranny you could to put a piano and, you know, all that sort of thing. And, you know, when we opened that complex, you know, I gave a speech that night and it's one of the things that I said was, you know, it didn't require this building to make the music excellent 
but because the music is excellent means there's a real need for this. So, you know, I think that sometimes we've got a, it's a chicken and egg. You sort of say build it and they will come, but sometimes it's the other way around. The fact that, you know, um, there's a highly engaged performing arts community that there are so many outstanding groups that really needed a home was part of the driver to go ahead with investing the money in that facility. You know, whereas if you were sort of fledgling arts program, it might be hard to justify that kind of expenditure. And um, look, can I say now it's about eight years since it's been built. And if you look at the landscape of that site now, you'd think it had always been there. And you'd wondered, Mm -hmm. how did we ever do all these things without this, you know, facility? So I think it was certainly money well spent and it's been a great success because what you don't want, of course, is to invest a lot of money in a facility like that and then have it standing empty. So, you know, that's fantastic to see um, that it's become like this core part of the campus that that, uh, everybody uses. Yeah, so, you know, these are all asset management decisions Mm. because you're saying, all right, well, we have a need or we have a a demand for a certain thing. How can we provide this, you know, because you can always make decisions around, well, yes, we could build our own facility. That's one option. We could hire external venues. That's another option. You know, Mm. we could have multiple small venues or we could have one big venue. There's, There's just so many ways to skin a cat you know it's never it's never a simple answer and then you've got to look at well how's it going to be funded you know uh, you're going to have to borrow all this sort of stuff and what's going to give us the best outcome not just for now but for the entire life of that asset so when you build something like that you know it's you've got to be looking out 50 years or even more Mm. you can't just be building what's right for now you have to be building what's right for the future needs as well so so these are all the sorts of decisions that boards need to make that are really all about asset management the same comes when you know is it time to demolish a certain building Mm. you know or replace it, Um, you know, obviously with asbestos over recent times, that's been a big decision that a lot of um, companies have had to make where really the cost to remediate the asbestos outweighs the cost to demolish and rebuild from Mm. scratch. Um, Mm. And in fact, you then know you're getting a safe building that isn't contaminated and, you know, doesn't have those issues. And again, you've got to build it for the future. So, um, yeah, so I guess those are sort of the some of the, yeah. um, and I'm sure, you know, just about every board director listening here would have many such of their own examples of the sorts of decisions that come across their agenda every meeting um, that certainly involve asset management. Yeah, but it's a great story to bring it to life, really, about, you know, strategic alignment, stakeholder alignment, that long-term view, lining everything up so that that that, so that it really works. It's it's a great story. And not having assets for, the, for assets' sake, you know. Exactly. Um, exactly. And, you know, in the work that I do, that's always really important where the first question is um, about what you're trying to deliver and the question is not what assets do you have. We, we shouldn't make our focus on the assets themselves. We should make our focus on what value we're delivering. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I want to turn to another story. Uh, I understand, you know, you'd spoken about working in mining, but I understand you were working in Beaconsfield when the mine collapsed. So I'd be interested to hear that story and in particular the, any of the relevant links, obviously, to the board's role in asset management. 
Yeah, look, that was really quite a, you know, interesting experience. Um, I wasn't working in the mine uh, and mm. I was not on the board of the mine. <laughs> I yes. to point that out. However, I was working in the community in Beaconsfield and it's a very small mm. town in the northern part of Tasmania. So it's one of those places where everybody knows everybody and, and really the mine was the main employer and then all of the other businesses in the town obviously rely on the mine for their um, trade as well. So, you know, it's the sort of place that has one small independent supermarket slash convenience store and Mm. three pubs, um, you know, so that's, um, but, but so it's a very small close-knit community. And look, you know, obviously it was a shock because it's a quiet place where nothing ever happens. And, you know, all of a sudden you've got CNN on your doorstep. Like it was was just inundated with media and all sorts of people and there was no space for any of them. Uh, yes, in Launceston, which is about 40 minutes south, there would have been some there. But what in reality what happened is that journalists would fly over mm-hmm. from Melbourne by helicopter. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, on a daily basis and um, so they were helicopters all day long all day long mm. helicopter because normally you know it's a town where everything's quite quiet and all you can hear was the turning of the mine shaft mm. has this real regular rhythm that you know all day you could hear sort of you know that metallic sound of it of it turning and of course that stopped mm. so you didn't have that kind of familiar sound anymore Instead, you had this very unfamiliar and intrusive sound of helicopters. And, you know, what puzzled me the most was that all of this was happening 925 metres below the ground and I wondered what you expected to see from a helicopter. But uh, (laughs) anyway, it was, was, look, a very, uh, look, I'd say it was two weeks of sheer adrenaline and no sleep pretty much. because it was uncertain, you know, you didn't know what was going to happen. And at the beginning, of course, we all we all assumed it was a recovery mission. Mm-hmm. So even yeah. though, of course, you want to have hope that people are still alive until they're found, I think mm-hmm. most people, you know, in their reality, they really didn't believe anyone would be alive. And yeah. so it was kind of, yes, it was reported and it was a story but, you know, it didn't really become a big media event until those two men were found alive. Then suddenly it was really a story. Yeah. But then suddenly it was also a very, very delicate rescue mission. You know, mm. it was no longer just about recovering bodies or, you know, investigating what went wrong. It was now about saying, hey, there's two people here and we've got to get them out. So, of course, media came in, but also a whole lot of mining specialists, explosive specialists, tunnelling specialists, every specialist you can name turned up as well to try to do everything they could to to make that mission a success. And obviously, as we all know, it was and they did mm. Out alive, which is really fantastic. But you know, then that mine was closed for well, it was closed for at least 12 months after that. They did mm-hmm. open it for a brief time following that, but it subsequently closed and it hasn't opened again. So, you know, in terms of the livelihood of that town, it's uh, obviously 
you know, that was the main income and uh, mm-hmm. that was the main jobs that most people had. And look, one of the interesting things about Beaconsfield, it's a long story of mining in that town, uh, which started back in the 1800s. It is a very rich gold vein. It's one of the richest gold veins in the world in terms of the density of gold within with how many tonnes of uh, rock you bring out and how much gold you get, it's a very mm-hmm. high ratio. And at that time, the gold price was very high. So mm-hmm. it was extremely lucrative to be mining that gold vein, even where it was quite risky. And so mm-hmm. this is where, you know, it comes to be the case of how do you make those decisions? Yes, we've got this asset, which is, you know, um, quite valuable uh there's we know there's gold down there we want to get it out um Mm -hmm. but you know after uh more than a hundred years of mining under that town it's just like a honeycomb and you know there's sort of the bits that are holding it up uh, Mm -hmm. have all got gold in them so you know but there's only so much you can remove before Mm -hmm. it's all going to collapse in a heap Mm -hmm. so you know there's this fine line to tread between what's the value of extracting that resource and what are the risks that, you know, people are taking or the company is taking by Mm. pursuing that. Now, in the early 20th century, the mine also closed and that was because it's quite near the river and at those very low levels, like we're talking nearly down to a kilometre, the river bed seeped in Mm. and they weren't able to go any further because of the water. But then in the 80s uh, or the later 20th century, there was technology was good enough with pumping and so on that they could then um, continue to to um, excavate, um, which is what they did. So, you know, um, I'm curious about whether the story of Beaconsfield might not be over yet and yeah. that um, because that gold's still there and I think sooner or later one day the technology will be available to allow them to excavate further gold. But, you know, what they did try was they did try using robotic mining equipment. Exactly what I was just thinking about how do you do it without sending people. There's still risk with that. But obviously, you know, the the more advanced that sort of autonomous technology becomes, then the more possibility there might be in these sorts of really high-risk environments. And again, these are all the decisions that you have to weigh up and that you have to balance, you know. Um, Do we close it? Do we (laughs) keep it going? Is it worth the cost and the risk of extracting that asset? You know, all of those things. So it comes back to priorities, um, values, all of those things that then come into making those decisions. Two fantastic stories to really help bring this stuff to life. As always, particularly with those great stories... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the time has gone ridiculously quickly. What are the key things you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? Well, I think for board directors, the really important thing to understand is that board directors are asset managers. Mm. So if you're sitting on the board, you are an asset manager. It is not just a technical job for engineers or something that the accounting department takes care of. Your job as a board member is that you are a custodian of the company's assets and you need to 
be making the decisions that determine what value will come from that. So I think that that's, you know, a really uh, important message for Mm. directors who are listening. Um, And so what it means is you need to have some level of understanding of asset management concepts and why, why it's important and also to understand what systems does your company have in place and what are your asset management practices and how are you ensuring that the decisions that are being made every day in your company are helping mm. you to those objectives. So it's really like any other management system that yeah. you might have around risk or safety or environment. Um, your asset management system is also one that the board needs to ensure is, is in place and working well. Is there a resource that you would like to share with the Take On Board community? Uh, yeah, so I have a paper on the board's role in asset management mm. and uh, so I'm happy to share that. I've provided a link there where you where you can download it. It's kind of the, uh, you know, brief summary of uh, what what I've talked about. So We love a cheat sheet here, so that is fabulous. I will make sure there is a link in the show notes for today and if people are out walking whilst you're listening to this or somewhere where you can't, just click on that. Uh, Just go to the Take On Board website and you'll be able to access all the show notes there as well, which might be easier. Oh, Monique, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, it's been great. And I know people will get a lot from both the really practical strategies and from the stories that you've shared today. So yeah, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. It's fantastic to speak with you. Hi there, it's Halia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.